This is the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. One of the best ways to learn is by reflecting on the mistakes and successes of others. Each episode within this series will showcase one of the many case histories developed by GBA and its member firms. They're a collection of stories that cover many different disciplines within the geo professions, each with a unique message and lesson learned. We hope you enjoy this podcast and encourage you to share the lessons learned with others at your organization. Welcome to the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. My name is Jen Sanborn. I'm an environmental consultant at Sanborn Head & Associates in Concord, New Hampshire, and a member of GBA's Emerging Leaders class and the Environmental Business Committee. Today, we are discussing GBA's case history number 64, which revolves around a geotechnical investigation for the cap design of an existing landfill. In this episode, we will cover the importance of having a clear understanding of the project scope, maintaining involvement throughout the life of the project, and the benefit of open communications with those involved in the project. Today, I'll be joined by Eric Steinhauser, a principal and senior vice president with Sanborn Head. Eric is a licensed professional engineer in 15 states and for over 30 years has been involved with the design, permitting, and construction of solid waste, remediation, geotechnical, and energy projects. During our discussion, Eric draws from his deep bench of experience in the solid waste field to provide his perspective on the lessons learned and thoughts on things that could have been done during the project that may have resulted in a much different outcome. As a disclaimer, Sanborn Head was not involved with the events that occurred in this case history in any way. I'll start off the episode by providing some background and setting up the story. As part of a landfill closure project, a county government hired a civil engineering firm to prepare plans, specifications, and bidding documents for construction of a landfill cap over existing areas of buried waste. The civil firm's scope also included managing the construction of the cap, which was to be performed by a contractor chosen by the county. The civil firm knew that a geotechnical investigation would be needed for design of the project. I'll break away here for a moment to describe what differentiates a geotechnical firm from a civil firm. Many firms can do both, but the main differentiator is that geotechnical engineers specialize in soils engineering, in other words, characterizing what goes on below ground. A couple of common areas where geotechnical expertise comes into play at a landfill include slope stability, settlement of the landfill, and understanding the strength of soil and waste for the construction of buildings or other infrastructure such as piping. In this case, understanding the extent of the buried waste was an important part of the geotechnical firm's scope of work, as you will soon find out. The civil firm took it upon themselves to first develop a geotechnical engineering scope of services, and then hired a firm specializing in geotechnical engineering to complete the scope of services. The scope of services developed by the civil firm for the project included excavating 28 to 40 test pits to depths ranging from less than 5 feet to a maximum depth of 12 feet. Test pits are a common practice where an excavator is used to dig to a particular depth as a way to observe the soil or waste profile. The scope of services also included preparing a report with the findings and design recommendations and an estimate of the landfill's lateral limits, in other words, how far out the buried landfill waste extended. 
This last part was very important in assessing where the cap would need to be built and also where to build proposed structures. I started my conversation with Eric to talk a bit about the technical challenges associated with building on waste. All right. Good morning, Eric, and thank you very much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. I thought that we could start off with a little bit of background on one of the technical issues that came into play with this case. One of the key design issues turned out to be more of a siting issue in that the placement of the proposed buildings uh, needed to be outside of the extent of the buried waste. Uh, this comes into play throughout the case. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the main concerns of putting a structure over buried waste from a geotechnical perspective. Thanks for that question. There's a couple different uh, ways to look at that, but specific to your uh, question, waste is unstable ground. And because of the waste uh, will degrade over time and will consolidate, the structures that are on like uh, shallow spread footings and such will differentially settle and, you know, crack the building or you can't open doors or windows or what have you. Uh, you can build through waste if you know where the bottom is and, you know, you have a good substrata below the waste. Then you're talking deep foundation type of structures or other ways to uh, modify the, the waste to be stronger. But typically, you try not to build on waste. There's also issues related to gases from the decomposition of the waste, the methane and other what you can consider, quote unquote, toxic gases that can come from the waste and get into the building. You can have explosive conditions or you can have just bad air uh, if people are going to be in, in the structure. So you try not to be on waste uh, at all possible. The project manager for the geotech firm decided to split out the test pits between the various elements of the project. 40% of the test pits were located around the perimeter of the landfill to determine the lateral extent, and 60% of the test pits were used to assess the other geotechnical considerations of the project not pertaining to the lateral extent of the waste. I'd like to note here that the geotech firm split out the test pits without really having a full understanding of the overall project's scope and objectives. The civil firm didn't provide that information for the project, and the geotech firm didn't ask. This is an important bit of information that we'll come back to later. So the geotech firm moved forward with the test pits and prepared a geotechnical engineering report that was submitted to the civil firm. Within the report, the geotech firm included drawings that used a dashed line to illustrate the approximate extent of the buried waste. The geotech firm also included cautionary language, such as the following approximate limits of solid waste. Existing landfill extent is inferred from surficial and subsurface data. Actual conditions may be different. And lastly, the limits of refuse shown on this drawing are approximate and for general information only. The limits shown are based on the best available information and estimates. And importantly, it shall be the contractor's responsibility to field verify actual limits. This type of language, also referred to as limitations, is commonly used in geotechnical engineering reports and drawings to bring to the attention of the design team, owner, and contractor that actual field conditions are likely to vary from what was presented in the report or drawings. The language also specifically stated that the contractor was responsible for field verifying the actual extent of waste. Having the limitations in there and the statement about the contractor's responsibility to field verify the actual extent of the waste is particularly important when assessing the extent of buried waste or any other material that is highly variable and uncertain. 
The civil firm accepted the geotechnical engineering report and drawings and didn't provide any comments or ask any questions of the geotech firm. Communication generally stopped upon submittal of the report to the, to the civil firm. The civil engineering firm moved forward with preparing the project plans and specifications for construction, which did rely on the information provided in the geotech firm's report. The civil firm did not ask the geotech firm to review the plans or specs to make sure the recommendations provided in the geotechnical engineering report were accurately interpreted, and this is where problems began to occur. As part of its submittal, the geotech firm had used a dashed line to indicate the approximate extent of the buried waste based on the limited test pit information that they had. Unfortunately, this line was inaccurately drawn on the civil firm's plans which made it look like the footprint of the buried waste was smaller than what the geotechnical engineer estimated based on the test pits. Part of the project included the construction of two pump houses that were intended to be located near the edge of the landfill and outside of the buried waste. On the civil firm's drawings, both pump stations were shown outside the dashed line representing the edge of the waste. If the dashed line had been drawn correctly, it would have been clear that one of the two pump houses was actually sited within the extent of the waste shown on the geotech firm's drawings. If the geotech firm had had the opportunity to review the plans and specs, this error would likely have been caught early on and that pump station would have been relocated in the design phase. The project was put out to bid, with still no opportunity for the geotech firm to review the plans and specs. The low bid was submitted by a construction contractor that was known for buying a project by lowballing their bid, and then issuing change orders throughout construction in order to earn a higher profit. The civil firm knew of this particular contractor's tactics and advised the county not to select them. The county went against the advice of the civil firm and hired the contractor anyway. During excavation, the contractor encountered landfill waste at both of the pump station locations. The contractor elected to excavate a trench to determine the vertical and lateral extent of the waste. The contractor's site superintendent had safety concerns because of the trench depth and stopped operations until the civil firm could review and provide further recommendations. The civil firm directed the contractor to resume construction per the original plans and specifications, citing a note on the design drawing requiring the contractor to verify the actual limits of waste. The contractor resumed excavation, but continued to have problems that required the civil firm to develop design modifications, which caused unforeseen delays in the contractor's schedule. The contractor informed the civil firm and the county that they intended to submit a change order because of the changed conditions. At this point, communications between the civil firm and the contractor broke down altogether because, remember, the contractor was working for the county. The formal change order submitted alleged that the contractor was owed a substantial sum of money due to delays caused by change conditions including a misrepresentation of the extent of buried waste and design modifications. Representatives from the county, the civil firm, and the contractor met eight times to deal with the claim. All parties finally agreed to mediate. At that point, a principal from the civil firm contacted the CEO of the geotech firm 
to tell him that they expected the geotech firm to pay one-third of whatever the civil firm was required to pay. The geotech firm contacted their professional liability insurer for guidance and then took a proactive approach by meeting with representatives of the civil firm and the contractor in an effort to resolve their involvement with the claim. The geotech firm soon joined with the other parties in the mediation and worked aggressively to reach a solution. Upon completion of mediation, the contractor received less than it asked for, and the civil firm and the geotech firm settled for more than they believed was merited. However, all parties were glad to have settled the claim and avoid legal costs, and each party benefited from not having to invest time and money in litigation. There are really, I think, four key takeaways or lessons learned from from this case history. The first one is that it's critically important to perform a complete professional service. And I know you've completed countless projects on similar types of sites. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk about what performing a complete professional service means to you on a project like this. Most of the projects I've been involved with, we're, we're the lead from you know soup to nuts on the project, so we know the, the end game. Uh, but especially when you're providing a subsurface, a subservice to uh, another consultant, you really need to understand what the end game of the project is or what the total mission of the project is. So if you're just asked to do um, test pits or borings or just a simple service related to a much larger project, it's always good to ask. How do you relate to that? Because you might find other ways to be of value, number one. Number two, you can better scope your service to help address the matter at hand. In this case, the, the limit of waste and the siting of structures presented a conflict that, that ended up in, in litigation or near litigation. And so it appeared that the, the, the GBA uh, firm, the geotech firm, either didn't ask for or wasn't told what their particular service was going to um, be used for or what the other items around that service were going to be. So in terms of complete service, just don't say I'm going to do five test pits. You know, what's the purpose of the test pits? Do, are they really need to be that deep? Should they be deeper? Should they be what, what type of excavator are you going to need? You know, is it a shallow or is it deep? There's other things to be considered. So you really need to be talking with your immediate client and understand their, their ultimate goals. And I think another piece of that in this case, too, is following it through to the end. So the geotech firm provided their information to the civil firm, but didn't really follow up in terms of how that was was being used and didn't ask for the opportunity to review the final plans and specs that were going to be used in construction and, and things like that. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of asking why, you know, what you're, what's the pers- purpose of what you're doing. So if it is for siting structures or whatever, then you want to say, oh, yeah, um, in your report, re- request that you get to check how your data is being used. It's that a complete circle of, of events. Make sure you know what you're doing and then make sure what you're giving them is being used correctly. And then as geoprofessionals, we take on a lot of risk about how our data is being used. And so making sure there's the proper limitations or cautions or requirements of how our data is being used and how we'd like to be involved to make sure the data is being used correctly. It's pretty clear that to me that if some of the information was known up front, the geotech firm 
would have had the opportunity to make some changes or recommendations before they started their work may have performed their work differently. And the products that that they issued to the client would have been justified or documented or otherwise qualified to the ends that you're talking about. The topic of limitations is important here, particularly when talking about the extent of the buried waste, which is really, there's a lot of uncertainty with that. And the member firm here did put some limitations on their original drawings and report. But if they had known the full importance of the extent of the waste in terms of siting buildings or other things like that, then they probably could have been even more clear about what those limitations were and and done a better job of following up on that. Absolutely. And I think had that communication gone between the two firms, the civil firm and the geotech firm, even even if they didn't do more work and they still had the unknowns, they could have put some onus on the contractor prior to their actual construction of the building to do other work. And we've done this before is where you say, okay, we, we know we have an unknown here, contractor, part of your contract is to dig extra test pits here and to confirm what we don't know. And then there's an allowance for making a change. So maybe the building has to move 10, 1500 feet. And, and there's a provisions for that change in the contract to start with. So, so we know what we don't know and we make provisions for dealing with that unknown. Yeah, that's a good point. So if, if they had if they had been more involved with the process, there are things that they probably could have coordinated more directly with the contractor too, in terms of getting in front of it and letting the contractor know what their responsibility was to further define the extent of waste, because that was on their their plans, but whether or not that actually even was communicated to the contractor at all. We don't know. It was um, kind of left up to the civil engineer. So if the if the geotech firm had had that opportunity, then that alone probably would have changed the outcome of this. Oh, absolutely. And and then you know there, there's the, the the approach of the contractor. You know, a, a low bid contractor versus maybe someone who's had a higher bid. Maybe the higher bid may have thought that through because they've been through similar projects where a lower bid's like, yeah, we know this is going to be a problem. There's nothing in the contract making us do this. Let's figure out a way to get a change order. All right. So the second key takeaway here was, um, and it kind of ties into what we were discussing previously in terms of uh, communication, but that it's really important to keep the lines of communication open throughout the project. I was wondering what did you see as some of the main gaps in communication? And do you think that closing those gaps could have potentially changed the outcome of the case? The, the civil firm had a request for test pits, a certain number and going to a certain depth. And that's based on some concept that they had. The The geotech firm did test pits, but they were spread out over a bunch of different things. Tech firm delivered may not have been apples to apples. So there was there was a communication change or a communication breakdown or something was provided that really wasn't needed or was extra and beyond, but for the thing that was really needed, it wasn't done to the same extent as was expected. 
Yeah, I got that same sense. And I think, again, kind of along the lines of communication, if they had been more upfront with understanding what the test pits needed to confirm, so what was the overall objective, then they might have put them in different spots. Uh, They might have requested to do more, maybe a different scope of work, doing different types of explorations, something along those lines, if, Mm -hmm. if they had communicated more upfront and asked more questions of the civil firm in terms of the overall project goals. Right. Because even later in the in the case history, it's t- they talked about these pump stations, which were never addressed in, in the first part of the civil firm's request or what the ge- geotech member did. You know, nothing was focused around those specific structures. And so when you're communicating, you know, project needs or desires and objectives, the geotech firm needs to ask what why am why do you so you want these test bits what are they for what are we trying to accomplish maybe i can do some other value things maybe the test pit isn't necessarily the right thing for this particular part maybe we have to supplement it maybe we can do it a different way and maybe we need to do other types of, of field testing there's other other methods that are non intrusive to look for edges of waste uh, that can get correlated to to test pit information so th- there's a lot of Things that could have been discussed that may have made the geotech's work more robust and complete. So that was, I guess that was kind of some of the communication gaps up front towards the beginning. And I guess it kind of shows the importance of having a project kickoff meeting with the team as a way of keeping those lines of communication open right from the beginning. Yeah, you make a really good point. I mean, there there could be kickoff meetings at various points in a project. So, you know, the silver firm, when they're developing their scope for their client, probably internally needs to uh, some kind of kickoff to say, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? What's all the pieces we need? What's our team? What's our subs? What's the responsibility of our subs? And then they got to talk with their subs to get their data and whatever to, to get the complete proposal to their client. And then when you start the project, and these aren't long meetings, or or they can be a, a series of, of other types of communications to constitute a meeting, but all right, we won the project, here's what we're trying to do, your role is this, your role is that, and everybody no- understands how their, their pieces fit in. If there's a structural working to build these buildings, they're going to need information from the geotech. So the geotech needs to know that they need to provide information such that a, a structural person is going to need it and when that needs to occur. Likewise, the civil was responsible for the whole thing needs to make sure all the things are coordinated correctly. And you, you need to talk regularly. You need to keep tabs on what's going on. You got to make sure all your pieces are coming together. And that's just, you know, the beginning part of, of the project. And then as you're developing things, you might find, oh, we're missing something or something doesn't seem right. You, you need to talk to other folks. And in this case, if they maybe they moved the buildings, they, they were further away and they moved them to another spot. Don't know if that's the case. The civil firm should have been talking to the civil, uh, to the geosec tech and say, hey, we made this change. Does that change your, your recommendations? And whether that was in the geotech's report or not, I think it's beholden on the civil firm. They had a changed condition. They should make sure all their team members are aware and that there isn't an issue. Likewise, I think the geotech, you know, you deliver your report. um, You you feel good about what you did. 
but our, those reports need to have you know the documentation or limitations or qualifications or assumptions about what that information is being used for and clearly state if there's going to be a change in a design or a use, then they need to be contacted. Otherwise, the recommendations are not valid or, or something to that extent. If it does go to construction, it's another thing we can have in our reports is that we'd like to be involved because there's always things that move in construction or value engineer change or, or whatever that, especially with the geoprofessional industry, it, it affects our work and, and likely our recommendations that need to be checked and, and gone through. And you could take it to the extent that when they're having the, the construction kickoff and they're, or prior to starting certain parts of work, the geotech can be involved because they're most familiar with the subsurface and they can help problem solve or strategize how work would go and, and help lead that, that case. So there, there's many touch points that we could do, but I think it all comes down to understanding what the end goal is and making sure you ask the right questions doesn't mean you'll get the right answers, but we we, we got to be on record for doing that to to protect ourselves and, and, and help protect our clients. Right. So even if with effective communication, the geotech firm still wasn't given the opportunity to change, let's say, change the scope of work at the beginning or review the plans and specs. There are certain there are things that the that the geotech firm could do to protect themselves from you know, issues that might arise in the future. And you kind of start talking about that with limitations and, and things like that. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it gets to be a little difficult because we can put those in our reports, but then we might not be hired beyond that. Or, you know, sometimes that report is with the, the documents for construction and the civil firm changes, you know, things get a little murky there, but we, yeah, we, our reports have to be clear and assertive in what we think we need to do. And so, you know, to protect our our work and and provide guidance to the, the ultimate clients about what needs to happen. And you, and you hope that people read our reports. You know, we spend a lot of time and client money putting them together. And you hope people read them and, and take heed of what of what not just what the recommendations are on the positive side, but what the recommendations need to be for for protecting the project overall. Right. So I think one other thought on this is that. The, from the communication standpoint, there were some gaps in communication, but there was kind of a positive here in that they were proactive about their lines of communication during the claim negotiations, uh, being proactive about joining the mediation talks. And and I get the sense that this resulted in uh, the firm having, they did have to pay part of the claim, but they were able to avoid a costly litigation case had had they not been more proactive or proactive about those talks and getting involved with the negotiations might have resulted in even more costs from going into more of a litigation scenario. Yeah, absolutely. You want to avoid litigation because there's this the cost is the, the legal fees themselves could be outrageous. So yeah, be, being proactive, um, talking. I think. If I remember correctly, there there was a little bit of a breakdown in communication between the civil engineer and the contractor, which mm-hmm. wasn't good. You try not, you know, it might be difficult conversations, but you got to keep in conversation because uh, that helps limit the chance to go to litigation. Maybe you can, you know, come to a resolution before you even have to get mediators in. That would be great too. 
but you need to step up to the plate and um, be responsible. But I'm not saying take the responsibility for what happened, but be responsible in the fact of being professional in trying to find ways to mitigate the problem, not necessarily pointing fingers, but finding solutions. The third takeaway of this was to really be alert when price is the most important thing to your client um, or the project owner. And we saw this in this case with the risky risky contractor selection. Is this a common issue that, that you've encountered when municipalities are the client? And what are some ways to add some protection when this occurs? Yeah, great question. So I think whether it's a municipality like a public client or even pri- private clients, everyone's budget conscious. And they're looking for for low as low a cost possible. One thing that I've been involved with with both public and private clients is that we have interviews with the the bidders, and to go through the project, make sure we understand their approach, make sure that we understand that they understand the the knowns and unknowns and, and how they're going to go about it. We directly ask where they where they see changes, where we need to be aware, where where what things can we do to limit those kind of changes. So you could have those discussions built into the bidding process. So then you can weigh the risks a little bit better. So maybe the low price contractor is really trying to break into that market and and, and knows what the risks are and they're willing to take those on versus one that's like, I'm only bidding on what you see and everything that changes I'm I'm going for. You might not be able to get that out of the interviews, but at least you have a, a way to help mitigate that. Another way to do that is is make sure the documents have as much information as possible. So not knowing what was provided to the contractors, we often uh, provide, um, when we do projects like this, all the geotech information. A lot of contractors ask for it if it's not provided because the client doesn't want to, but we give them the, the location plans of all the, all the test pits or borings, and we give them the logs for that. So they can also make their own determination of what they're going to come in contact with so they can do their pricing. So the exchange of information, the, the communication of what the knowns and unknowns are, are, are ways to mitigate that. Um, but but it's it's hard to, especially for municipalities or really budget conscious clients, not to go with low bidders unless it's a really good way to justify that, you know, through those interviews that, you know, low bidder A, this doesn't really understand what we want them to do and bidder B, which is a little bit higher, does, and that's a better value and a less risk to the to the organization. The fourth takeaway here is that conflicts often are contagious. So when a conflict arises on a project, it tends to spread to affect others. I was wondering what your thoughts are on conflicts and productive ways to manage those during a project. I think there's three ways to approach a conflict, right? There's, um, you, you don't you don't think about it. You, you just hope it goes away. And that's not good. There's the very defensive approach where you, you know, the finger pointing starts. And that's where you get into, quickly into arguments and people, organizations stop talking to each other and, and lawyers get involved. Or you take the proactive approach and say, okay, we have a problem. Let's figure out how to get this done. You know, and everybody chips in. No one necessarily takes on the the responsibility for the problem, but they're taking on the responsibility to find the answer. 
Because oftentimes it's not just one entity that could be culpable in in the issue. So, but if we all work together, we could save a lot of time and money not arguing and in, in just getting to the resolution. So upfront communication, regular communication being involved to, especially to the extent their clients want, or at least, consult, you know, even if you have to do some things on your own dime to prevent an issue is, is valuable in, in my mind. And we, at least my practice and what I try to work with our staff is let's try to keep thinking in, in front. And when we think there might be an issue, let's, let's bring it up. Hey, this might be an issue. How do, how do we want to take care of this before it becomes a problem? Yeah, that's a good point. And I was thinking about that as you were, as you were talking, it, it is uh it's an awareness thing for staff to know that they should be kind of on the lookout for potential problems and, and bringing them up, even if it's not directly related to our particular role in the project, but, but really as a team, it's, it's important to be recognizing these things and, and at least bringing them up to the project manager or, or whoever else might be appropriate to talk, talk to about that. And really that can save, save a lot of headaches and potential issues in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you look at it from a personal life perspective, if you hide from the problems they don't go away and they get worse. If you take them on and, you know, do the hard thing up front by bringing it up and discussing it or, or saying, I, I think this might be an issue. It might not be a big deal, but I think we should think about it. Or th- this is something that might happen. The awareness all around might not be directly appreciated at first because they might, oh, they're causing a problem. They're tra- costing me money. But in the end, I think it's, it's res- well respected and appreciated. I think when issues do come up, when you do stand up and be in front of it, our, our clients and I think the people we work with, you gain a lot of respect because you're not shying away from a problem. You're you're trying to be part of the solution. Right. And trying to be part of the solution and taking a step back and looking at maybe what's in the best interest of the client from a broader perspective. Did you have any other lessons that you took away from this, this case history? I had one, and it might be a little self-serving, um, you know, being in in the, this industry for, you know, about 30 years, there, there are firms that are well suited to do landfill type work. There, there are some nuances and in, in, in definite differences between a landfill project and other straight civil projects. Firms that in, in staff that understand that will do better jobs overall than, than other firms that might be well qualified and have great people and, and do great work. But the nuances of landfill work are are really particular. Landfills are are, are dynamic um, in their nature. They have some really interesting differences in terms of how they behave, their innate hazards, and the the limitations that people in the industry know about how, how to work with them. You, we could do a lot with landfills. They're, they're very cool projects to work on. I I've been doing them them for you know like I said thirty plus years and and really enjoy making them useful resources for society when they're active landfills and making them safe and have a reuse for them in closed time. But there are some concerns that if you're in the industry and you've you've come through the practice, you'll know what to do. And I think a firm like that may have had better 
feelings for the things that we were talking about, about the knowns and unknowns and, and how to do the communication and, and, and possibly take another steps in qualifying contractors and making things clear with the, con- with the client about what can and can't be done and working with their subs for specifically the information they need to get. Yep, that's a great point and a really good reminder about the importance of working with firms that understand the intricacies of landfills. There's a lot of things that are unique to working at landfills and it takes it takes years of experience for a firm and individuals to to really understand what those are. All right, well, thank you very much Eric for being here, your insights are extremely valuable, and and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this this morning. Thanks for inviting me. This was fun. This was my first podcast, so I really enjoyed it, and I wish you luck on the other ones you guys do. All right. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. And that concludes this episode of the Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. As a reminder to our listeners, you can download the full written case history and hundreds of others at geoprofessional.org or by following the link in our show notes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the GBA Case History Series. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the GBA podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. Nothing.